This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we take your toughest maintenance questions and we try to solve them. So if you have a question, reach out to us at podcasts at aopa.org. And if you like the show, make sure to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to get on our email list for our quarterly newsletter and uh, maintenance stories, uh, the easiest way to do that is to text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and uh, email bot will ask you for your email address and put you on our mailing list. That's text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to get on the list. I have had a lot of difficulty finding Aeroshell 100 weight oil locally, like zero supply. Has anybody else had that issue? And 48110 oil filters. Yes, yeah, I saw that. What's going on? It's COVID. (laughs) The oil got COVID? (laughs) Supply chain problems. (laughs) Yep, yeah, COVID created supply chain problems that I think are just now showing up. And the weirdest things, you go to order a certain uh, spark plug and find out that they're not available. I mean, you got to do an oil change. I'm I'm actually temporarily switching to Philips XC20W50, which I don't need in Southern California, but it's available at a reasonable price and I just can't get the aeroshell. I've actually started ordering my oil mail order, which I don't like to do because the shipping costs are significant. But yeah. my local oil jobber who I've been using for the last 30 some odd years is no longer either willing or able to get me oil in the, what are they, three liter jugs. Yeah. Um, They used to be gallon jugs and three liter jugs. And, you know, when I do an oil change on my 310, I've got to put 24 quarts of oil in (laughs) and I don't want to have to open up and dispose of 24 individual quart containers. So I always get oil when what used to be gallon jugs and now is is three liter jugs. And um, I can't seem to get those for my local jobber all of a sudden. So I've been, I've been ordering the mail order. Well, so I've got to ask Mike several years ago, we overhauled the one engine and then did cylinders on the other and you used to carry at least a case of oil with you. So I'm just wondering if, if now you just carry extra quarts or do you still carry cases? No, it's, it's, I, I always <laughs> typically will carry between six and eight a quart uh, 
containers of oil in the wing locker. Well, it's way better than it used to be. Yeah. 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 I just carry a couple. I don't have two engines to feed, though. Yeah, I just carry a couple, but I don't make count epic your, your blessings. No, no, you don't have two engines to feed. You have three engines to feed. Well, That's another yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. Yep. My trips are not normally the epic left coast to right coast kind of events like Mike's often are. Our next question is from Bruce, who has an engine that's still a little hot under the cowling. Go ahead, Bruce. Hi. Uh, you may recall show. some months back, um, we talked about putting new cylinders on the Continental O300. Oh, you're a, you're a second a offender, a oh. repeat offender. Okay. I don't recall that, but um, I'll take your word for it. Okay. I had four cylinders that had over 2,000 hours on them, and two were starting to show low compressions, and I was getting high oil consumption, and I uh-huh. went ahead and changed all six. And I'm happy to say that under the old regime, at uh, 7,500 feet, 6.4 gallons per hour, I'd turn 2460 RPM. I now turn that at 5.9 gallons per hour. So there's a substantial improvement in power of this engine. It took about 50 hours. They're superior cylinders. It took about 50 hours to break them in. And I've got one, number four, that insists on running hot to this day. And I'm still chasing that. And for a while, it was number four and number six were running hot. And number six really buffaloed me because that's the most forward cylinder in the engine. You think it had the best airflow. So I started playing with the baffling at the front, removing it. And I got the temperatures down on number six. They're actually a little low now. I'm, break, I'm starting to put the baffling back. But number four still, in any time you climb, number four instantly goes hot. In a right turn, it goes hot. In a left turn, it takes a little longer to go hot. But I cannot get it to settle down. And in cruise, if I get everything right, if the outside temperature is right and I get the mixture leaned enough, it'll run right at about 400. But it's really easy to get it to spike. And the quickest way to bring it back down is just to cut power. And I'm at over 100 hours now on these cylinders. So I'm still chasing the one, and I'm wondering is, do you ever have a case where a cylinder just doesn't break in? And I've gone through the uh, intake system and made sure there's no leaks. Define hot or spikes. Over 400 degrees. Just like 401 or 430? No. If, um, when I climb out, uh, it'll, it'll jump into the 420s really fast, and then <laughs> I start doing things to bring it back down. Or if I, I need to change altitude... My airport's at 5,400 feet, and if I got, want to go west, I need to be at 10.5 and uh, reasonably within 20 minutes. And so, with this cylinder, that's become a bit of a problem. So what did you do to check your induction? I pulled the intake tube back off. I resealed it. I made sure that the rubber coupler was making a good seal. All that stuff is new. I can't find a leak, so I don't think I've got a manifold leak anywhere. And uh, all my... Baffling is good. It's the same as it was before, other than the mods I've made on the front of the number six. Oh, I did do one other thing as I was chasing this. I added a splitter uh, on the top of the engine to make sure that it's getting even airflow to both sides of the engine, and that wasn't there before. Have you tried taking that out? That could be the next step, although it didn't seem to make much difference either way. This, this is an 0300, right? 
Yes. So it's not a wet sump engine and doesn't have an oil cooler up in the front, right? It's correct. Kind of like an O200. Yep. With an extra couple cylinders tacked on. You did some stuff with removing baffles to get better cooling on number six. And 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 by by doing that, you were stealing air from number four and number two, right? Because yeah, somewhere it's only a certain amount, right? And believe it or not, number two has not given me any issues. And you'd think it would be the troublesome one. No, no. The, the back no. cylinders are rarely the trouble cylinders. It's the middle. And the way the baffling is on this engine, there's two plates up front. Yes. And by removing one plate, I was able to open up a little more than an inch across. But that, that's almost never a good thing to do, because that that plate is that plate. That's the point, though. It plate it, the the plate is there to prevent number six from hogging all the cooling air. So by taking it off, you you, you know you you're just naturally going to be moving the problem. Well, I already back. had the problem, so I've address number six it's now cooling properly and i'm adding the plate back so that number six i want it running probably 385 most of my other cylinders run in the mid to high 300 well i mean you can you can want that all you want but <laughs> the, <tough>. the, these <laughs> these legacy airplanes that have cooling systems that were designed back before engineers had, had the ability to design them very well you know if 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 your cylinder head temperatures are are within a range of fifty degrees between the hottest and the coolest, you're doing just you're doing really well. You're never going to get those those things to be right to be equal. There's always always going to be a hottest cylinder. With the old um, cylinders, which I flew behind for twelve hundred hours, the only time I ever had overheat on that is on ninety degree plus days climbing out from mountain airports. Otherwise, yeah, I well, never had a problem. Right. And when you said that the first thing that happened is number six and number four were both running hot, that instantly makes one suspicious that the inner cylinder baffle between number four and number six is is either missing or mispositioned. And then you put a Band-Aid on six by removing a baffle that really should have been there. And so now you're artificially cooling number six, but not in the way that it was originally designed to be cooled. And that leaves number four as being hot. So, I mean, the first thing I would really want to do is take a really close look at the inner cylinder baffles, which are very easy to to have mispositioned. They're beneath and between the cylinders. and Right. They, they look like, an, a, like a kind of upside down Y. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Exactly. And they should make good contact with the crankcase. Often what I usually see is that they're mounted and there can be up to an inch of gap where they're mounted too far outboard from the crankcase. Yeah. And you let and, a huge amount of air spill over. And a good trick to diagnosing stuff like that is is to put a, a you know, a shop light, a bright light down at the bottom of the uh, of, of the engine cowling uh, facing up and then stand on a ladder and look down on the engine and look between each pair of cylinders and you shouldn't be able to see any light coming through because if light can come through from the bottom to the top that means air can go through from the top to the bottom and so that that'll if there's any gaps in there the light trick will will uh, will make them pretty obvious 
But that's the first place I, I would look. I mean, it's no guarantee that that's what the problem is. But but anytime anytime there's there's cylinder change or an engine change and a pair of adjacent cylinders are 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 hot, the, the first suspicion is it's the inner cylinder baffle between that pair of cylinders. And and Bruce, if it's any consolation, I removed my last engine and uh, reinstalled it after uh, overhaul and. It, it didn't run the same heat wise as the old one. And I was the one that did the installation and removal. So it's, it's very, the baffling is very tweaky. It's, you have to get it, you'd have to keep fiddling with it. But I would go back to your original configuration, take away all the fixes and changes you did, and just make sure that the original configuration is solid. And maybe that will fix your problem. Okay. Um, certainly easy enough to do that check. I've looked at those baffles so many times already. Maybe it's a good idea to get someone that hasn't looked at them. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Our next question is from Derek, who is being foiled by his fabric. Go ahead, Derek. So I've been snooping through some hangers and ran across a gentleman that has a mall M4. And uh, after talking with him, we're trying to make this thing fly again. And we keep looking into what it's going to take to get it up and going. And, and one of the big questions I got right now is, is the fabric. I've had a couple of APs that kind of snuck by into the, into the hanger while I was looking at it. And they're like, Oh, this thing is done. You got to have it recovered and everything. So I'm trying to figure out where the limit is. Seekonite, I guess I'm seeing some things that say it's got a long lifetime. The doping is showing some time, some age on it, but the, testing method in it is kind of questionable, I guess. So what's a good way, a uh, non-destructive test, preferably to check the fabric and then kind of what's the expected age limit of the Seekonite? Can I take this one? I have a Seekonite covered aircraft, so. Colleen has been just waiting to get this. <laughs> she is ready, let me tell no, you. No, it, it's fascinating. This is really interesting stuff and it's a lost art. So I just love talking about this. The Seekonite process is an STC process uh, that conforms to TSO C15D standards. And it has its own manual that has an appendix with inspection procedures. And it describes in detail what you need to do to determine airworthiness of the Seekonite covering. And the key thing is that it's not necessarily the fabric that you're testing, but you're testing the dope that's been applied to the fabric. As long as the dope is still able to block UV light, it usually infers that the fabric is in good shape. It's when the fabric is exposed or that silver, actually it's aluminum coating that protects the fabric uh, becomes compromised or too thin and allows light through, that's when the fabric starts to deteriorate and you should be concerned about the airworthiness of it. So the manual, which I don't know if we can post that in show notes, but it's available online if you just search for it. It's called the like Seekonite 101 manual. It's, it's uh, pretty easy to find. It will explain that uh, you can do an initial test where you use your knuckle and you just push against the fabric. And if the fabric is not pliable or flexible, and if it cracks or you see little cracks in the dope, that indicates that the dope is beginning to weather. If it passes that, the other thing you want to do is take a 60-watt light bulb and shine it from the bottom or from the inside uh, and see if you can see it through. Or maybe it's from the outside looking from the inside. But you're trying to look and see if you can see the light through the fabric. 
And if you can, that indicates that the UV blocking uh, has failed or is beginning to fail and that the UV can damage the fabric. It's a pretty simple test. You don't have to do any punch test or, I mean, they have other destructive testings where you cut a strip of fabric and try to hang a 56 pound bucket of um, water from it and see if it fails. But I think it'd be better to just do the initial tests non-destructively. Yeah, I have a good feeling that doping on this one is going to need to be addressed on it because it does show signs of cracking. It's been in a hanger for roughly 11 years and not been flown, but it's showing age. You know, it, I mean, it's funny. If it's in the hanger, it's out of the UV, and in theory, it should be okay. The tail section of my Skybolt is starting to show its age. The, the tapes that go over the the ribs on the uh, horizontal parts of the elevator and the um they are kind of peeling up. They weren't glued properly. And, and I'm seeing a lot of cracking. So I think I'm going to be doing some covering soon. But typically, it's, it's the UV and then the, the propeller uh, blast, you know, the air that, uh, that causes the, the fabric to vibrate. And that's what causes these tapes to lift up and, and start to fail. Can he rejuvenate like you yeah. can on some of the old stuff? There is a technique for rejuvenating the fabric. It's kind of making it pliable again. And I didn't read that section, so I don't remember how you do that. Do you remember? Yeah, the, I mean, the, the the question that, as somebody who knows absolutely nothing about fabric whatsoever, just listening <laughs> to you, uh, the, the question that popped into my mind is, if the dope doesn't pass the cracking test, but the fabric passes the light transmission test, can you just put new dope on it and not have to strip it off and start all over again? Yeah, there's there's a form of that. They call it rejuvenating, and I'm certainly not a fabric expert, but uh, they're depending on the chemicals, the dope that's used. Uh, you can go in, and sometimes it can be uh, apply chemicals and it kind of brings it back to life. You get another, you know, get out of jail free card kind of thing, and that'll last for a while. It looks like rejuvenating is Appendix C in this document. So there is a technique for doing that. So well, you might want to get the document. Look at that. Involves yeah. a 50 fixed 50 mixture of acetone and Jack Daniels, right? Like that. <laughs> yeah, but be careful which one it is you choose to drink and which one you put on the airplane. <laughs> now, Don't get them uh, confused. You're trying to rejuvenate the, or bring this mall back to life. One thing you might want to think of is taking the fabric off is an excellent um, time to you know inspect the surfaces underneath. There's a lot of things you can't see because of the fabric. They don't have enough inspection plates to, to really give you a good look at the structure. And it's, I don't know about the mall. Does it have a metal spar or is it all wood? It's probably metal, right? It's mostly metal. I haven't seen yeah. any of the wood, but I know there's some underneath that are supposed to be wood and be inspected also. Yeah. It's just, it, I, having bought an airplane that had substantial structural issues underneath the fabric, which I found in flight during aerobatics, it, it's always <laughs> nice. Not the nice. best time. <laughs> no, it wasn't the best time. I, I don't want to hear any more laughing about the things that I do in flight to see if things work, if you're finding structural problems in flight doing aerobatics. Yeah, I haven't talked much about that, but it yeah, was an interesting not, experience. Uh, it it always <laughs> makes you feel better to know what you're what you're getting into. <laughs> so, well, but um, but the airplane was fully redundant. It had two wings, so it, it had two did. wings. Yeah. It did, and a lot of flying wires to hold it together. Uh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, so a recovering is always a great opportunity to do an inspection. And if you're not if you're not counting your labor, then you should recover it absolutely. 
it's it's actually a lot of fun. It's just yeah. a lot of work. It, it is, is a lot it, of work. It is fun. We we did a uh, Super Cub a couple of decades ago, Dad and I, and that was an absolute blast. It really was. But we found out pretty quick that if you have a business, that is the dumbest thing you can ever do oh. is try to run that through your business. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's it just people seems that to just that, do that. that. Fun is They're fun artists. is obviously in the eye of the beholder because it doesn't sound like fun to me at all. <laughs> and the thing about a recovering too is that it, it's always aesthetic, right? There's always yep. sags or runs in the in the dope or the paint. You know, your you, your um your lines aren't straight when you do your um your outlining for the um the design and the tapes aren't straight. I mean, everything is aesthetic. So people will walk up to your plane and say, Oh, I guess you recovered your own plane. (laughs) (laughs) And then you stand up proudly and say, you betcha I did. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's really a lost art. So you'll definitely want to have some help when you're doing it. Yeah. That's one thing I'm running into down here is, uh, there aren't a whole lot of people recovering in the area. So I'm trying to get it somewhere to have it done is going to be the next step. California. Oh, no, no, we you need to you need to do it. This is great stuff. Come to Southern California. We've definitely got the talent down here. If if you like arts and crafts and believe in the TLR system, I'm telling you, <laughs> this fabric covering is the thing for you. It is fun. It is. It's really rewarding to do it. It's I especially love rib stitching. So much fun. I mean, it's very tedious work, but. Just have a couple beers and you'll have a fact, great time. It's, it's it's so much fun that Paul is just half tempted to to go down there and help you. Out. <laughs> I'll, I'll help you take the covering off. I'm not getting involved in putting it back on. Yeah, taking it off. <laughs> anyway, does does that help, Derek? And uh, it does if, very much. If you have trouble finding the manual, just uh, drop a note to Ian, and we'll make sure you get it. I'll do for sure. Thank you. Okay. All right. Thanks for calling in. Great question. Our next question is uh, from Oscar, who's all tied up in safety wire. What's up, Oscar? Hello, guys. How you doing? Great. Well, Mike, Paul, Colleen, it's an honor to be talking to you. I am wonderstruck as it is. I hopefully <laughs> won't, you know, won't fall out of grace from the supreme trinity that I have here. So. Oh, yeah. You do not get to talk. Yeah, you do not get to talk to my wife. <laughs> So um, straight to the question over here. Back at the beginning of the year, I got into uh, what I thought a small project, uh, 1958 Skyline. <laughs> All projects are small. 90, 90% done and 90% to go. Yeah, I thought this one was a simple engine swap and everything was going to be you know, fairly quickly, get the annual, get it up in the air and all that. I Actually, last week is when I finished paperwork and everything and went up in the sky with the plane. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, it took me longer than I expected. But anyway, I performed most of the work, well, all of the work under the supervision of my IA, AMP. Uh, I ended up fabricating new baffles and Mac timing and all of that stuff. So you guys, I'm sure I've done all of that. So needless to say, I know the plane very well now. And I'm also keeping track of my hours so I can eventually become an EMP. Yeah, good job. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. You you can come work for me. (laughs) Well, my brother lives in Chattanooga, so. Come on over. Yeah. (laughs) So um, the question that I have here, it's essentially a sequel of 
that episode, uh, that little cat doesn't hold the wings, I think it was. You mentioned okay. briefly that safety wire doesn't hold a fastener stork. Right. So if it only serves the purpose to not letting the screw, the bolt fall out, and uh, you know, aside from the fact of the obvious uh, small hole, small wire gauge, big hole, big wire gauge, why can't we just use one wire size? Well, for the most part, we do. I mean, there's what, three common sizes of safety wire, 020, 032, and 040, but I mean, 95% of everything is safety wired with 032. Right, okay. The one that's the big change then you really need to pay attention to are turnbuckles, flight control turnbuckles. They're, and you can look in uh, AC4313 1B change 1, I kind of live there an awful lot, especially in Chapter 4. But Chapter 4 is where all the structural stuff is. But anyway, you go find it, and it will show you the different ways to safety turnbuckles. And depending on which method you choose and what the diameter of the turnbuckle is, determines the diameter of the safety wire to use. But you really don't want to use any of those methods. You want to use clips because (laughs) safety wiring turnbuckles is such a a pain. But but his 1950s something 182 doesn't have those kind of turnbuckles. I don't think. Do you have you looked at your turnbuckles to see if they'll accept clips? I have not. I actually didn't mess with the uh, rigging of the plane. Everything was pristine. The previous owner had the plane always under hangar, so no issues there. So you need to come to the the. one eighty two class that we're doing in a few weeks, and you'll change your view of all of that. Yeah, the you know, clips are definitely absolutely the better way to go if your turnbuckles accept clips. But some of the really old ones don't have the uh, don't have the slots, little holes. Yeah, yeah, they don't have the holes. But yeah, safety wiring turnbuckles is very it's it's kind of artsy craftsy sort of stuff. You want to make them look right, and you want to make sure they don't gouge somebody's fingers or wrist when, you know, you go up inside the airplane. A certain number of turns, there's all kinds of cool stuff. You can do double wrap, single wrap. Some people just show off, you know, and they'll do a double wrap just because they can. But they don't do double wraps where it's hard. They only do double wraps where it's easy. For the the next day. The the safety wiring turnbuckles is a a disincentive to adjust your cable tensions, you know. so (laughs) I. I, Uh-huh. Especially because you're in the you're in the tail and you're all crammed in there trying to get it done right or through an inspection hole. It's usually yeah. It's also why why airplanes get out of rig. Kind of talking about flight control rigging, because when you go in and you come go for your annual whatever, and they check the tension on the cables and it's oh it's five pounds below spec, so they'll pick the easiest turnbuckle to get to. Just like Mike was saying. And they'll tighten that one up, which is okay the first time because it only takes like one turn. But over a period of five years, 10 years, 50 years, the same turnbuckle gets tightened every time. And pretty soon now your control yoke is lopsided. (laughs) Lopsided. (laughs) And so, well, what are we going to do about that? Well, then we go adjust two other turnbuckles that actually makes the problem worse. And then we find out that everything's out of kilter when we're airborne. So someone goes and adjusts the aileron yeah, rod, the rod end. <laughs> yeah, from the from the bell crank to the aileron, and pretty soon it is so out of out of whack that you're only getting half of your aileron travel that you should have, 
and finding out that you don't have full travel in your ailerons when you need full travel of the ailerons is a really bad time to find that out. So yeah, there's you 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 want to uh, you want to go check out your flight controls definitely uh, for all the travels. And on your 182, it has the bell crank travels out in the wing are fixed. The stops are not adjustable. So someone, you can have somebody move the control yoke and go to the left wing and you can listen to it. When it hits the end of his travel stop, it'll have a nice clunk. And your left uh, bell crank should clunk up and down and the right one should clunk up and down. And they probably don't. (laughs) So you'll probably have both ailerons will clunk at the top but not at the bottom or at the bottom, but not at the top, depending on which turnbuckle has been tightened every three or four years for the past 50 years. Oh, 60 years. Yeah, you said 50-something model. It's it's as old as I am. So but, you're yeah. saying that they, they tighten the tension in the wire so much that it won't even hit the hard stop because you can't get that throw. Oh, yeah. It, to, yeah. to properly interesting. rig interesting. ailerons, and I'm talking about a Cessna, Pipers, it's all the same concept. They all have cables and pulleys. And there's at least three turnbuckles in an aileron system. And in order to tighten the cable and keep the ailerons in their proper rigging requires that you adjust all three turnbuckles if, if it's significant. So your, your two direct lines would be a half a turn for every full turn of the carry-through line. Understood. So it requires, it requires so a second mortgage. It requires, yeah. it requires, you, you have to sit and think about it. If, if you've ever uh, cut uh, paneling in your house, not paneling, the trim, you know, trim molding and make sure you cut it in the right direction. This is ailerons are kind of like that. So wait a minute, I tighten this one a half and that one a whole. Anyway, it's a lot of fun. But once you get it right, it's awesome. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think the plane is still in good shape because I do hear the clunking on extreme extreme left and, and extreme right. So it, it seems to be okay on that side. My bigger concern was, like, like I mentioned before, there are some safety wire bolts that go on the backside of the engine. Now, this is an 0470 that is really close to the firewall and... I need smaller hands than what I have to get there with the wire and then twist it all around so that I can get to it. And for the life of me, I forgot to do it before I put the engine. So you just remove the, yeah, remove the engine. Yeah, just pull it makes it a lot easier, yeah. We all need smaller hands. It's not just you. Or use long pliers or, I mean, yeah, I feel for you. (laughs) I'm I'm a no plier kind of guy. So I don't like reaching in there with pliers and nicking up the safety wire. I'm a weird guy. I'm sorry. Paul I'll has go small hands. I said, well, I'm not too small. <laughs> he actually does it with his feet, but he doesn't let anybody watch. <laughs> so I, I guess I have to hire the surfaces of a six-year-old then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so, you know, I, I don't remember doing safety wires as a six-year-old. I was bucking rivets as a six-year-old. But yeah, the, the safety wire thing, absolutely. You practice it with your eyes closed. Sometimes you can do it better. There are a lot of things on the back of the engine that you kind of yeah. wish you'd done before you put the engine in. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good to know. Next time. Well, guys, right, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for the call. We enjoyed the talk. Good luck with that, uh, Oscar. Good luck with that project. Yeah. yeah. All right. Glad you have it flying. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Okay, here's another great question from Scott, who's been going round and round on leaning procedures. Go ahead, Scott. Hi, I've got an N3N3, and it's got the right 760 engine on it, and it's all original. But I don't have a baby monitor on the engine. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I'm the controls and the monitor for it. And I've been listening to your podcasts, and you talk about engine monitors and Lena Peak and all that, and I I get that. But the manual for the engine, and it's a Navy-built engine, actually, says just keep the thing full rich. Well, on the ground, when I'm warming it up and stuff, I lean it back. But when I'm flying it, I run it full rich all the time. And so my question was, would it be better to lean it out or keep it full rich, because I was wondering if the full rich would wash some of the oil off the cylinder walls. And then a friend of mine said, well, the full rich helps it run cooler and things like that. So any input from like more than one person is appreciated. Does it have a big red mixture knob? Oh, yeah, it's got mixture. It's got all that. I mean, I can adjust the mixture in flight. That's not a problem. So I wonder why they gave it a mixture knob if if they didn't want you to actually use it. Well, you have to shut it off with something. (laughs) Oh, okay, the shut off, yeah. I I have a rhetorical question. At the time that that Navy manual for that was written, what did Avgas cost? Was it like <laughs> twenty cents a gallon or something? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I also wonder if it's a way to keep the students from screwing up that they didn't mess with the mixture. And well, I, I well that's why they painted so. it. That's why they painted the knob red. And the so, other thing yeah, is if that you touch they it, were you're going to bleed. They were flying around training yeah, at very low altitudes. They probably needed that full rich most of the time. They probably never took it up very high. So we well, have I don't to get yeah. up very high either, but yeah, yeah, I get nosebleeds. Yeah, since the government was paying for the fuel, that's probably well, a we, good reason. We, for... we should probably take a vote. There are three of us, so we can't possibly deadlock on this. My 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 vote my vote is in cruise. You should lean it to the onset of roughness, and then just enrich it just barely until the roughness goes away. Running it full rich, among other things, is 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 just going to deposit an awful lot of filth in the combustion chamber on the valves and the valve stems, and, um, and the engine's going to be a lot happier if it's running with an appropriately lean mixture, regardless of what the Navy had to say back in. Is that because of the lead? Well, uh, the 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 lead is is a big part of the problem. Yeah. Okay, because. One of the engine rebuilders that I've talked to recommended running it on half car gas and half avgas, you know, the, the no ethanol car gas. And he said it's better for it because it's reduced lead. There's too much lead in the current gas. Well, I, 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 I agree with that. Um, That's low compression, so that would be fine. The, the, uh, what, what, whether, it's, whether it's logistically reasonable for you to run it on car gas because not too many airports dispense car gas that's a lot of gas cans <laughs> yeah but yeah i mean it it it, it, it i'm sure it's a, it was a low compression engine and, and probably would be very happy running on unleaded uh, mo gas yeah uh, if you change the oil on that engine you probably notice gray slimy stuff coming out of the oil which is going to be but, but we digress we were going to take a vote on on, <laughs> oh, yeah. on how Come you should lean what's your vote oh i love leaning yeah, yeah. it's just another leaning. piston engine sure 
So I, I totally agree. Don't get any arguments here, but something to add to it. And I don't know this engine specifically, but one of the cool things about radial engines cool. is that carburetor. Is that a pun? Cool thing. Ah, <laughs> I'm a little slow. Is that all the induction pipes are exactly the same. Ah. So running Lena Peak, it actually should do a pretty good job of all the cylinders being close together. I, I'm sure we'll get emails saying, oh, I, I put a baby monitor on, on my, you know. <laughs> they do make them for <laughs> radio right engines. On my right 760, yeah, they do. Yeah. They, make, they make engine monitors with odd number of cylinders on them. So uh, you, could, you could get one of those. But I absolutely think that uh, running Lena Peak, just pull it back till it's a little rough, go till it's smooth. It should work perfect. And you should have a pretty balanced engine. Why, why do I have a, this sinking feeling that from now on, Paul's going to call them baby monitors? I love, I love it. <laughs> I love that. I think that's great. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. No, it was great to have a question about a round engine. We really appreciate you coming on the show, Scott. Thanks for the call, Scott. Thank you. Our next question is from Bob, who's learning that no two engines are alike. Go ahead, Bob. Okay. So, um, I am a, currently own a two-seat extra 330LX. Prior to that, I owned a one-seat extra 330SC. It turns out they both have exactly the same IO580 stock engines. And at the time that I sent this question in, they both had exactly the same propeller. Since then, I've changed propellers because I, I really am a fan of Hartzell, Talon, and uh, Claw props as compared to the FTs that I've had some yeah. <laughs> issues us, with over us time. Too. <laughs> but yeah. that's a that's a whole other topic. But um, but the prop is irrelevant to the conversation for what it's worth. But what I noticed with the new new engine uh, or the new airplane is that it seems to run quite a bit hotter than the old airplane did. I uh, have difficulty uh, leaning at all in the airplane without the temperatures getting pretty darn high on the cylinders. I typically, in the old airplane, wouldn't ever see, by design, I didn't like to see anything over 400 on the cylinder. And I, I've talked to people since then that say, oh, well, you could go hotter than that, and that's not that big a deal. But for me, I've always kept it in the 380 range sort of as uh, my goal maximum. And this new engine, well, I keep saying new engine, this new airplane, to me, I can't lean it. Uh, less than 20 inches without it going over 410 on the cylinders. And uh, number five is the hottest, uh, but only by a little bit. And so I'm trying to figure out, do I have a gauging problem, a gauging difference? I mean, I've looked at baffling. I've sealed up the engine mounts with RTV, well, you know, the red silicon. To, so, mm -hmm. so I'm getting more air through the cylinders themselves. The cowling inlet area and ex exit areas look the same. The, I mean, the designs are so similar, it's hard to understand what's functionally different. There is a difference in one area. The 330LX, the one that's running hotter, does have a heat muff on the exhaust that is actually not connected. It's kind of strange, but it's got an inlet at the top front left side baffle uh, that runs scat tube back to the muff on the exhaust, and then it dumps it right overboard out the outlet because the option when the airplane was purchased did not apparently include connecting it to the ducting inside the fuselage. <laughs> for for cab, cabin heat. 
So I get no cabin heat, but I'm yeah. carrying this extra thing that I'm thinking maybe it blocks the exit flow area. I, that's that's the oh, only look. difference I can find. And uh, you know, I've cleaned baffles. I've changed. I've checked timing. I've done kind of all the things I can think of. Somebody suggested, well, I had issues like that, and so I switched from Champion plugs to Tempest plugs, and that seemed to be better that made no difference you know i'm kind of out of ideas and now i'm thinking do i have a gauging problem is this a real issue or well uh, let me let me ask what to do next you talk about leaning you can only lean it to 20 gallons an hour are you just leaning real slow until you see what the chd does well try this would be just my thought right off the bat since you've done all this other stuff why not just go because you're at 20 gallons an hour, you're running rich of peak, and it's going to run pretty hot. So if you do a big pull and get all the way to the lean side of peak, you're probably going to find your CHTs are going to drop down because the 16 gallons an hour on the other engine is probably, if it's not lean of peak, it's pretty close to it. I would think so, yeah. But so my technique, I thought, was to go slowly so that I find the peak. Yeah, we we that, that's that's not a good thing to do for the engine. This, Bob, this is the uh, this is the AEIO five eighty with the with the uh, with the aerobatic uh, oil system and everything. Yes, both of them identical. Yeah, I, I you know I, I look at the TCDS for that engine. It's pretty unusual Lycoming. First of all, it's a, it's a nine to one compression ratio, which I didn't I didn't realize that that Lycoming made any engines with nine to one compression ratio. I know a lot of them you know, experimental ones get you know, 10 to one pistons and stuff, but this is nine to one out of the, it's got a um, ignition timing of, uh, of 20 degrees rather than the usual 25. It has an unusually low CHT red line because most Lycoming engines have a CHT red line of, of 500 degrees. And this is, this one has a red line of, of, uh, of 465, which is pretty close to like a continental red line. So that's a considerably more conservative red line. So from that standpoint, I think that your desire to run these cylinders around 400 or, or less is probably, is probably a good one. It, for you know, stock Lycoming, we're, we're, we're comfortable with running them at 420 or stuff. But this, one, this one's a little touchier in engine, it sounds like. It's got a higher compression ratio. And the higher compression ratio means that Mean, you know, it's going to mean that, that you're going to have higher CHTs and lower EGTs than if the compression ratio was lower than that. But he said that uh, the last engine, which is the same engine, just different installation, it ran cooler. So something's different. Uh, are they both the same engine monitors in both um, both planes? Yeah. The the to ask answer your question as to whether it's instrumentation problem, I can almost guarantee that it's not. The 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 JPI tend to be just absolutely dead nuts on and um you know a a really way to a really easy way to check some of that stuff is that before you start the engine uh, power up the jpi and all all of the chds all egt should be about outside ambient and they are so that heat muff is very suspect i mean uh it can be really finicky about the exit airflow that can really change the dynamics of the air through the engine and is it possible to just eliminate that since you're not using it anyway? You're uh, leading me right into my next question is, it's a certified airplane. Can I take that off without an STC? 
Well, to begin with, I would probably just, you know, put some duct tape over the air inlet so that there's no air m- moving through there and see if it makes a difference. If it does make a difference, then then there's no point in pursuing it because it's not the problem. Yeah, I did that and it didn't make any difference. I think duct tape is legal on a certified airplane. So you're just duct taping the neck? Only the highest quality duct tape. It's kind of like Velcro. It's not really attached. (laughs) But is it? (laughs) Yeah, I think you're asking the right question. Um, I'm not convinced that it's the airflow through the SCAT tube that's causing the issue, but maybe the fact that the muff blocks part of the exit airflow. Oh, just its physical size? Yes. Yeah, it's pretty good size, right? Well, yeah. what I would suggest taking it off and not telling anybody and seeing see what the difference. Yeah. If 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 it if if it doesn't, if I may doesn't, have never done that before. Yeah. If it doesn't make any difference, <laughs> just put it back on. And if it does make a difference, then then see if you can figure out some approval basis for leaving it off. The the cooling of the of the ducting air is very dependent on the inlet area of the cowling and the exit uh, ratio of the inlet to the exit. And so the you know if one or the other is different, then that could vastly affect how much air is flowing through the engine. So I would experiment like that. Yeah, but I would still dramatically change the way you're leaning the engine. The leaning it slowly is not a good idea. If you just feel you must find peak then get to the lean side and find peak from the lean side, not the rich side. Because your your detonation issues are all on the rich side. Once you get to the lean side, everything relaxes. Now, you, you're using this airplane for, for competition aerobatics? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, if, when you're flying yeah. competition aerobatics, you probably don't run, so it, run it lean yeah. to peak. That, that's, yeah. that's really for, like, I, I cruise and stuff. I don't at all. It's uh, recommended by pretty much everybody I know to right. Full rich. Yeah, I, I think for for aerobatics, when you're constantly changing the power settings from maximum to minimum, back and forth all the time, that 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 you probably he's just, just need. He's just trying to get to the contest. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. But for, <laughs> for, for that, leaning leaning it aggressively would be a good, probably a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will. Uh, I will see about pulling that off at the next time the cowling is off and. Uh, See if that makes any difference. And I'll also, uh, so the, the proper technique for leaning would be lean till fairly quickly till it runs a little rough and then enriching. Yeah. 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 And after, and after you've done that a few times, you probably get a pretty good feeling as to what fuel flow you wind up at and, and, and you can use just lean to fuel flow as kind of a shortcut. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Colleen, why don't you own one of those? Extra yeah, oh, that, sound, I, that sounds like you're not enough wings. I'm interested in another expensive aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. Uh, maybe, maybe my husband will buy one and get into it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, too many, uh, too many hobbies. Yeah, but are he, you? But, but if he buys it, will he let you fly it? That's oh problem, yeah, man. oh yeah. I, are you flying unlimited, Bob? Uh, yeah, I I used to. I sort of retired from the team stuff uh, mm-hmm. about three years ago, and now I'm just trying to trying to break even flying air shows. Yeah. Oh, air shows. Oh, that's fun. Okay, cool. Well, have fun with that. That's a beautiful airplane. Uh, Thank you. Okay, well, that's a wrap. What did we get right and what did we get wrong? We would love to hear from you. Most importantly, please send your questions and comments to podcasts at aopa.org. Fly safely and have fun. We'll see you. Bye, everybody. (laughs) 